0: Very likely that you remember a few weeks ago on August the 2nd, I preached two lessons. The title of them was Predictive Prophecy. And in those two lessons, I had two objectives which I wanted to accomplish. Usually, when you start preparing a lesson, you begin with a thesis that is, something you intend to prove or something you intend to communicate to your audience. And the first of those two things that I wanted to communicate was to stress that the Bible is trustworthy, that when you and I open our Bibles and we begin to read, that we can have great confidence in it based upon the prophecies that are written in the Old Testament and that are clearly, plainly, and fully fulfilled as God had promised in them. The second one was to confirm the deity of Christ Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And I feel quite confident that if one simply takes the Bible, reads it, and studies it, he will come away with the conclusion that the Bible is trustworthy, it is inspired of God, and that Jesus Christ is God's Son, and you and I can have confidence in that. And you think that when you finish a lesson, you're done. However, there was a follow-up question I received by email. And the question was basically this. Does the Bible teach a single or a dual fulfillment to predictive prophecy? Now, I know that there's some of you right now who are probably saying, I have no idea what he's talking about. Let me give you an early warning in this lesson. This is a challenging topic. I have read since August the second three or four books and a number of articles, and I have read a tremendous number of the prophecies to try to make sure that I was going to go down the right pathway, which is what you would expect. I will tell you that this is not a very simple, basic lesson. You're going to have to focus. You're going to have to pay attention. You can't have sleep. You can't uh, let, uh, let some of this bypass you. If you do, I can assure you, about halfway through the lesson, you'll say, what in the world is he talking about? You've got to focus. So this is your early part of the sermon warning. I will tell you this is a lesson of maturity, which it might be, and I may be a little offensive here. If this lesson is too deep for you and you've been a Christian for several years, this might be a bad indicator because in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again what are the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for to be." But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. What the writer of the book of Hebrews was saying is, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek. But he said, some of you are not ready to fully grasp that. It's going to be hard to explain it to you. I hope that's not the case tonight. I hope it all makes perfect sense. But I do want to encourage you to follow along as we talk about this. There's only going to be two points. The first one is going to be some explanations. I've got to explain to you what we're talking about, some of the uh, terms that will be used. And then number two, I want us to examine the evidence. Let's go to the Bible. There are a number of prophecies. I can't look at them all. We're going to try to look at three or four as time permits to be able to understand it. Let's begin with the terms. I want to go back to the term that I used in August and it's called predictive prophecy. And you say, well, I know what that means. It means that there was a prediction made and then later there was a fulfillment of it. But that's not all of it. In Isaiah 46 and verse 10, Isaiah says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I shall do all my pleasure. Essentially, predictive prophecy is God knowing what is going to happen before it happens and declaring that so everyone knows that God knows the end from the beginning. And not only does He know it, God brings it to pass, which tells you a lot about the character of God. Then there's the word fulfillment. You know, you have a prophecy made, and then you have a fulfillment of that. And the fulfillment is the completion of a promise or a prescription. And in fact, the original word means completed, finished, realized, or accomplished. And what do I mean by a promise or a prescription? There are promises that are in the Old Testament, Like, for instance, Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor its sovereignty left unto another people, but it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. That was a promise. There were some that were also prescriptive. That is, for instance, in Matthew 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy but to fulfill. You see, Jesus' role was to fulfill, bring to completion the Old Testament law. Now I have to talk a little bit about typology. And this is a very deep subject as one begins to explore all the uses of it in the Bible. I'm only going to make reference to two of them. But typology is where you have a sketch of something in the Old Testament that prefigures something in the New Testament. Two of the best that I can think of is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 as well as 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. And he says in the latter part of Romans chapter 5 verse 14, he said, In the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. A sketch, if you will. Not not the full details. He was the first man, Jesus was the life-giving spirit. You can see that as Adam brought sin and death, Jesus Christ brought life. There's a similarity, if you will. But even clearer than that is that of the flood. You see, there was the old world and the new world, and what separated them was the flood. The flood was what washed or cleaned the world away from all the sinful men that had populated it. God preserved Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And 1 Peter 3.21 says there is also an antitype. This is a word which means it answers that Old Testament type, which now saves us, namely Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through faith or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then there's another term that is called allegory or allegorizing. And it means literally if you translate the word to speak in another way. And we sometimes use the word analogy or illustration so that you will take something and you will have a similarity and you will tell it in a different way. In some ways, the parables function like that. But we're talking about things from the Old Testament coming to the New Testament. Now let me explain to you the problems, the difficulties, and why this is so uh, challenging. Prior to the 1800s, men had a respect for the Word of God. It was held up and respected as being the Bible. The fact that it was inspired, that it was a message from God. But about the same time that evolution began to take off, the origin of the species, you had a number of men, particularly who lived in the country of Germany, who there's what's called German rationalism. And they believed the only thing that you could know for truth is something that you could discern from your five senses. And so for that reason, they said, we can't see miracles being performed today, and therefore miracles didn't occur. And because of that, they said every time you see a prophecy in the Bible, for instance, like in Isaiah with regards to the coming of Cyrus, they would say that what had to have happened was is that that was written after the fact. And so they denied all predictive prophecy. They also reject the virgin birth. They also reject the resurrection because they are anti-supernatural. Now, that didn't catch wildfire but it did dominate most of the colleges and universities to where that's where the people were being trained. But there's a number of people who said, you know, that just really doesn't agree with what the Bible says. So there's another group that arose after them, and they're called neo-orthodox. Neo means new, orthodox means correct teaching. And so like we're the new correct teachers. We're trying to fix what they did. But in reality, they were nothing more than compromisers. They tried to say we accept what the Bible says but we also accept what they say and so they invented this idea of dual fulfillment of prophecy. They would say that the events that are described in the New Testament are simply the New Testament writers taking and appropriating or applying a prophecy of the Old Testament not as if it really was given for the New Testament, but they just simply used it. And they would say that the events were actually fulfilled during the times of those who wrote them. And you say, well, that's not worth much. And it's not. But there are some principles that we have to discuss as well. Sound Bible interpretation. That is, when you and I pick up our Bibles and we try to understand what it means, we have to understand that a passage only has one meaning. If you've not been paying attention up to point, now it's the time to pay attention. The Bible only has one meaning. And when you go into a Bible class and someone says to you, what does this passage mean to you? What does it mean to you? As if every one of us could have a different meaning. Do you recognize how ridiculous that actually sounds? Now there may be several applications. I may be able to take the Bible and see a principle within it and apply it. But the Bible only has one meaning. And one must first know what something means before you can apply it. Otherwise, it's ridiculous. Multiple meanings causes the text to lose any significance whatsoever. And what it does, it makes the reader assign the meaning rather than the writer. So if I write a letter to you instead of what I am intending to say or what I'm intending to mean... You say, well, I'll just take it however I want to take it. That's not correct. That's not the way you approach God's Word. You can't say, I'll make it anything mean anything that I want it to mean. So how did the New Testament writers interpret the old? Well, let's examine the evidence. Now, what I wanted to do was to begin with a little bit of like what an attorney might do as he goes to either defend his client or as a prosecutor might do, and he is trying to uh, convince the jury. What they will begin with is the evidence will show, and they will begin to go through a number of things that they're going to describe. So I want to begin with sort of a brief outline of what I think the evidence will show. Predictive prophecy is a contemporary situation with a future outcome that is when you go to these Old Testament prophets they are living in a specific period of time facing a particular set of circumstances and yet the prophecy that they make is for an outcome that's sometime into the future the writers will frequently reveal the exact fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy what do I mean by that You look at the book of Matthew alone. Just look at Matthew alone. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Or this is fulfilled. In fact, Matthew uses the word fulfilled quite frequently. There will be many allusions to biblical events that are not necessarily prophecies. They were only used to illustrate, as I mentioned earlier in this lesson, that sometimes when I go to the Bible, I can find analogies, allegories, or illustrations, and we will observe that. Okay, let's begin now looking at the evidence. If you will, you need to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. This is probably the most contested passage with regards to the idea of dual fulfillment or multiple fulfillment In the Bible. So I want to address Isaiah 7 rather um, extensively, not to every detail. I will tell you there's been whole books written on this subject from Isaiah 7 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive, or shall conceive, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the background of this. Keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 7. The context is about 735 B.C. and Ahaz is the king. 735 is important because in 722, just 13 years later, the northern kingdom is going to be carried into captivity by the Assyrians. That's important for the context in which we're looking. There had been a confederacy between the northern kingdom, Israel, sometimes called Ephraim as it is in this context, and Syria. And the two heads of these countries had gotten together and said, we're going to go down to Judah, the southern kingdom, and we're going to knock Ahaz off the throne, and we're going to put up our own puppet king. Now, a little bit of background behind the political situation is is that Assyria was growing in power. And what they needed was a group of nations to be able to withstand them. One nation couldn't do it alone. And so Syria and the northern kingdom had decided they were going to stand against it. They needed the southern kingdom to stand with them. Ahaz was not going to do that. So what happens is they're threatening them. They're saying, okay, we're going to come and get you. Notice with me what takes place in verse 2. And it was told the house of David saying... Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. You see, a tree, when the wind's blowing, will vacillate back and forth. It's shaking. That's exactly the attitude of the people that's taking place here. Isaiah was sent to tell Ahaz and the people not to panic. You know, here's two nations coming against you. What are we going to do? Are we afraid or we're scared of them? No, you don't do that. Verses 3 through 9. I'm just going to very quickly try to jump through this. He says, Go now to meet Ahaz, you, and Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct that's at the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. So there's a specific location where you're going to go meet him. Say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. for these two smoking firebrands. And then if you drop down and look at what he says, verse 6, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set up a king over them, the son of table. You see, God is saying to them, don't worry. And in verses 7 through 9, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. You see, he's told them, don't worry. It's not going to happen. Don't panic. So when you get to verse 10 and you begin to see what he's saying, here's what he says. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord. Your God, ask it either in the depth or the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, he's asked, not only asked, but he's commanded. It's in the imperative. Ask for a sign. I can give you one in the earth below. Maybe water turned to blood. Maybe some sort of physical thing on the the face of the earth. Or in the heavens above. Maybe you want the uh, sun to be darkened for a while. Ask and I'll give you a sign. Ahaz refuses. He said, I'm not going to do it. In fact, he says, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to test God. Actually, by his refusing, he was testing God. He was putting God to the test to see whether or not he would respond. Just like in Hebrews chapter Three verses 8 and 9, he talks about your fathers tested me and saw my works for 40 years. So he says, God himself will give you a sign. Now here's something very important to notice. God will give you a sign. You is plural. So the message is not just Ahaz. God is going to give you, the nation of Judah, the children of Israel, the descendants of David, you are going to be given a sign, and that sign will be a virgin will conceive. Now, I mentioned to you the challenge that was brought a pass about others denying the inspiration of Scripture. And back in the 1940s, I believe it's 1946, the Revised Standard Translation came out. And when people opened their Bibles and began to read and they were reading the Revised Standard, they got to Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And behold, a young woman will conceive. And you see, what they were trying to do was to change the force from it being a virgin to being a young woman. And somebody says, well, don't you know that's what the Hebrew words mean? The word used here is the Hebrew word alma. And it means a chaste young woman of marriageable age, that is, a virgin. I repeat, it means a chaste young woman. Y'all know what the word chaste means? Pure, whole, without blemish. A virgin. Now the liberals say, well, if Isaiah really meant to say a virgin, he would have used the word betulah which means a young woman in which has never had sexual relations. But here's the biblical perspective on that. If you go back to Genesis 24, you find Isaac going to his father's people or to uh, his mother's people. And when he gets there, there's a beautiful woman by the name of Rebekah. And if you look in verse 43, it says it, Behold I will stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass when the virgin and the word is used here is Alma comes out to draw water. You go back up to verse 16 but now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. The two Same two words used to describe the same person at the same point in time in her life. And my point is simply this. The scriptures he used both of these terms to describe the purity of this young woman who's going to conceive. Now, were there any questions whatsoever? Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23 settles it. And Matthew said, So this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin will conceive... The the Greek word for virgin here is, without doubt, parthenos, which means virgin. Now, you can say, what is the significance of all this? Those who want to talk about dual fulfillment or even sometimes multiple fulfillment say that this had application to a young woman who was conceiving in Ahaz's day. And they would say that the one that this refers to is perhaps a descendant of Ahaz, Hezekiah, who would be a good king. Maybe perhaps it refers to Isaiah's son by the name of Meher I know that's a long name, but that's his name. But there's no indication of that. In fact, what would be the sign in a young woman conceiving they're the only ones who do conceive. Old women can't have children. They pass the age in which they can't. Men can't have children. Who's the only one who can conceive? What would be the sign in a young woman conceiving? You see, it becomes utterly ridiculous. But you see, this prophecy grew out of a current situation. Ahaz was a failure to the descendants of David in per- Fighting for and protecting the kingdom. And it would only be when the Emmanuel, which is very important, which is literally translated, God with us. Hezekiah can't fulfill that. Meher Shalahashbaz can't fulfill that. There's only one person who left heaven, came and dwelt among men, and took upon him flesh. John 1 verse 14. And that was Jesus Christ. Matthew, by the Holy Spirit, said that God said it and applied it to Christ. And no one else can prove another virgin birth. So how many fulfillments do you have of Isaiah seven fourteen? One. And the scripture applies that to Jesus Christ. Now I've got to move quickly. If you'll turn with me now to Joel chapter 2. I would assume that most of you are very familiar with this passage. It is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 16. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then he goes on to say in verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. When I get to Acts 2, and the apostles have begun to speak in tongues because the Spirit came upon them, Peter said, these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. You see, there was a prophecy, and there was a fulfillment of that prophecy. The context of Joel was there was a day of the Lord right in front of them. For them it was a locust invasion if you study Joel chapter 2 very well. But Joel pointed out there's another day that's afterward, that's in the future. And he says that that would be when the children of Israel would have the day of the Lord coming upon them. And it would take place afterward, be marked by things such as prophecies, The dreaming of dreams and visions. The fulfillment, Peter made it clear that he was speaking in tongues, was a fulfillment of this prophecy. The fulfillment was not for a specific day. It wasn't for just the day of Pentecost. It was in those days... So you don't have, for instance, when Cornelius and his family began to speak in tongues, a multiple fulfillment. You have actually the fact that it is in the latter days that there was going to be the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So in essentiality, you just have one fulfillment that is spread over those days because it was at that time span in which all of this was prophesied. Let me give you one more. You want to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. In Second Samuel chapter 7, David is said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established from before forever before you and your throne shall be established forever. Now very quickly the context of this is David wanted to build God a house. In fact, David was so enthused about that, and after David expressed that to Nathan, Nathan said, go and do all that's in your heart. The Lord will be with you. However, God went back to Nathan and said, that's not right, Nathan. You go back to David and say, no, you can't build me a house. I know you want to, but you can't. But very carefully, if you'll notice, the last part of verse 11 of this context, right before our text He said, and the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Oh, you mean David's wanting to build God a physical building, a physical house, a temple? Yes. But God's answer is, I am going to build your house, David. Hmm. That's an important part of this. The fulfillment was partially realized with the allowance of Solomon to build God a physical building in Jerusalem. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 20 says, So the Lord fulfilled his word which he spoke. I filled the position of my father David. Oh, there you get to see a very subtle part of that is there was a prophecy made about the descendants of David, and I began to fulfill that because God let me build him a house. But it was only completed when Jesus, as David's son, arose to the throne, whose throne is then permanent forever, who does not build a physical house but builds a spiritual house. Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, Thus says the Lord, saying, Behold, the man whose name is Branch. From his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear his glory, sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the counsel of his peace shall be between them both. And what you come out with, in essence, there's only one fulfillment of this. It began in Solomon, but the prophecy was that God would build the house of David he began building the house of David with Solomon but it was only ultimately realized in Jesus when he built God a spiritual house which is a forever house. The one that Solomon built was not forever. Sometimes one would only know it if a prophecy was specific, specifically given when the New Testament writer tells us. I'll just use one illustration of that in Hebrew, or excuse me, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, when I was a child I loved him, out of Egypt I call my son. Most of us in reading Hosea would think all he was thinking about was the bringing of the children of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage. And yet when I get to Matthew 2 verse 15, Matthew tells us that that's when Jesus having fled to Egypt with his mother and uh, supposed father, was sent there, and then after Herod the Great died, he came out. That's the only way I know that's what that passage means. Or you can find delusions like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and you just pull out a couple of verses. Verse 6, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the things which they also lusted. Verse 11, they're our examples, and they were written for our admonition. There's illustrations there. But when it comes to prophecies, you have God saying, this is going to come to pass. And when it does, that is the fulfillment of it. Predictive prophecy is a powerful proof of the inspiration of the scriptures and of the deity of Christ. But I will tell you that when it comes to our studying and handling the word of God, we've got to make sure that we handle it properly. In Acts 17, verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily where they find out where these things were sold. Don't accept anyone's opinion on it. Accept what God says and then apply it. And again, John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures for them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. What is clearly revealed in the Scriptures is that God loves man, God wants to save man. That's not the difficult part. I hope this lesson has addressed a little bit of it. i tried to deliver it quickly. i tried to deliver it clearly. And I hope that uh, it did help and encourage. Tonight, if you are here and not a Christian, we'd love for you to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you. Jesus loves you. And we love you, and we'd love to see you become a New Testament Christian because of your faith, to repent of your sins, confess that faith, and be baptized. Everything's ready for you. It's just a decision that you have to make on your part. If you are already a Christian, and you're looking at your life, you see sin there, and you want to have prayers, let that be known tonight. Would you come as together we stand and sing.